Today, we talk about the signs of the times. Are we closer than ever to Jesus' return? But before we get to that question, I take on the bottle cap challenge. This is the deep end. This is the Bible. And this is the Deep End Podcast, where we talk about the Bible in modern day language. Thank you for joining us. This is the Deep End. Okay, that's how we roll around here on the Deep End. We are with the modern trends. Yes, indeed. The Bottle Cap Challenge is sweeping the nation, or at least some of it anyway, including the Deep End Podcast. This uh, Bottle Cap challenge, you're supposed to do a roundhouse kick to the top of a bottle with the cap loosely fitted onto the top of the bottle so that you kick the bottle cap and it spins off in glorious exit (laughs) from the bottle. Now, I didn't want to take the time to really practice that hard because I wanted to put my time into this podcast. This is a very important podcast, very informational, very important for Christians and non-Christians and All kinds of people, because what we do here in the podcast is we keep you informed about what's going on in the world today, and we teach you the scriptures. Now, this is episode 30, and this today is a special excursion episode as we break away from our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Revelation and talk about this question. Are we in the last, last days? Before we get to that topic, a couple of things on the deep end front. Number one... Our deep end tumbler is flying off the shelves as we speak. People are buying these things, and you should do. You can check it out at the deep end website, thedeepend.tv. <laughs> Shameless promotion here today on the deep end. Uh, you can also check us out on Instagram.com, the deep end slash the deep end TV, Facebook.com slash the deep end TV, YouTube.com slash the deep end TV. Picking up a trend? It's very easy. Slash the deep end TV. Like, and subscribe on YouTube. That helps us uh, with all of our YouTube promotion and um, broadcast. We were finally able to get youtube.com slash TV, And so there's certain levels you got to get to to have these opportunities and make it easy for your listeners and watchers. By the way, if you're not watching on YouTube, you should start watching on YouTube. Get the whole family on the couch and put it on your smart TV. Make it a family event. Uh, It is uh, going to be important to watch because we're going to talk about things in the scriptures, and I like to do this more and more. We did this last week. I I use my little magic pen here, the Apple Pencil, and I underline, circle, and mark up the biblical text. I like that. I think it brings the, the podcast alive. So watching is always a better experience, in my opinion. But You don't have to watch if you're listening on a podcast app. We're so glad that you are. If you are listening on AM Talk 1240 in Woonsocket, welcome. And FM 99.3, Thursday nights at 7 p.m. So glad that you guys are with us as well. My name is Tim. I'm the host of the Deep End Podcast. I'm also the pastor of Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts, with a campus in Woonsocket, Rhode Island as well. So we did a poll last week about what Bible book you wanted to hear us uh, cover next, because we are almost done with Revelation. And drum roll, please. The book of Acts has won. The book of Acts. Well, it wasn't my first choice, but I got to tell you, it's a great choice. Uh, The book of Acts is probably... One of my, you know, it's one of my favorite books, but I think it's one of the most important books that we can talk about because 
it talks about, and this is going to be the theme of that whole series uh, the next season. We will take a break from the podcast uh, in August, and we're going to revamp our studio once again. So we will return in September, but uh, we're not done yet. So keep tuning in every week until I tell you we're going to take a break. But we um, make a theme of what that book is really about. Revelation, the theme has been, if, you have, if you've been with us at all, you know this, the theme of Revelation is to teach us what is really real. So what we see is not necessarily really real. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's only the surface of what is really real. Well, this, that was the theme of Revelation. The theme of the book of Acts, which I'm really excited to get to, is nothing stops the gospel. Nothing stops the gospel. Anyway, I could talk about that going forward for the rest of this hour, but I won't. We've got to get to our talk today on the book of Revelation. But at the same time, remember I said this is an excursion. An excursion. So we are sidestepping Revelation. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to answer this question. Are we in the last, last days? Matthew 24 is the sermon, it's called the Olivet Discourse. That is a fancy term for the fact that Jesus said these things from the Mount of Olives, thus the term Olivet. The Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley, opposite the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It is to the southeast of the Temple Mount. It was a place where Jesus went to and prayed. By the way, it was also where he was arrested. Uh, it was a place where he frequently taught. But we have this one speech in Matthew 24 and 25 where Jesus basically unpacks. He's getting ready to go to the cross, so he's talking to his disciples, and he unpacks the signs of the times and how to interpret the signs of the times for his disciples. But what you're going to see when you read through Matthew 24 is it can't possibly be just for his disciples because there's just too much details. There's too many details that pertain to things that are cosmological, that are astronomical. And I don't mean that in the term of, the, of, of an adjective. I mean that in the term of the you know, astronomical ways of the universe, okay? Uh, so... We are going to look at ver uh, these verses in Matthew 24, and I want to stipulate that there is a difference in the New Testament and in the Old Testament between the terms last days and latter days. Last days are what the Jews in the Old Testament refer to as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the inauguration of the kingdom of God exhibited through the church in the world. When you hear the term last days in the Bible, most of the time, this might shock you, Christian, who, and especially the Christians who are obsessed with determining who's the Antichrist and trying to find out when Jesus is going to come back. Most of the terms and most of the verses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that refer to the last days are actually talking about right now. We did this a few weeks ago. We said one of the last days. They have been happening since Jesus ascended to the right-hand side of God the Father. When you read 1 John, he says, now we are in the last days. Uh, when you read Peter, he talks about that. Now, when you read Paul, and, and so these, these times right now that we are in, called, some people call it the church age. It's also called the last days. See, all the prophets before Christ were speaking of Christ and what he would do. You read Isaiah 53, and it sounds like a New Testament passage, but it's an Old Testament passage written 800 years before Christ ever set foot in Israel as a man. How did he know that was going to happen? Because the Holy Spirit inspired Isaiah to write it down. 
And there are some people who say, well, Isaiah just made it up after the fact. That was not Isaiah, actually. That was some Christian who kind of wrote it into Isaiah. But then you have to explain the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were, which were discovered last century, and how they had exact copies dated to 150 years before Christ, carbon dated to 150 years before Christ, exact copies of the entire book of Isaiah and Deuteronomy, and basically the whole of the Old Testament preserved as a witness to the world. And it's a significant time in history for that to be found because the Dead Sea Scrolls were found exactly 10 years, almost exactly 10 years from the time Israel is reborn as a nation in their own homeland. And I would like to just posit that these are all not coincidences. These are events that have taken place at the same time and in the same century to tell the world, get ready, get ready. God is up to something. He is, he is, working toward the last of the last days, the latter days. And so that term, latter days, is different than last days. The latter days is referred to in the New Testament as the days in which uh, we will experience increased godlessness, okay? In the New Testament, Paul warns Timothy that in the last days there will come times of stress and distress for God's people, 2 Timothy 3, 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about the man of lawlessness who will arise in the last days and deceive many. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about the later days, latter days. So when we are talking about the last days, we are talking about the church age, but when we talk about the latter days, or as I like to say in this episode, the last, last days, we are talking about what should we look for to determine the proximity of Christ's return. Is it happening now? So let's get into Matthew 24 because this is important and I'm going to make a point and then we're going to get into the actual predictions. Verse 1, Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away. So he's going across the uh, Kidron Valley and he's going up onto a hill. I've been there myself. There's all these olive trees in this garden. He's going in there, and he says this. He left the temple, was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is looking at the temple that was constructed by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a tremendous construction project guy. He was well known for his construction projects all throughout ancient Israel in the um, in the first century, really, in uh, I think he's, I think he lived from a, B.C. 36 to A.D. 6. I'm not sure. He didn't live long. He was a vicious, wicked king, but he was a very um, successful king in terms of his building projects. Well, he built the second temple. It's called, uh, that's why we refer to the time of Jesus as Second Temple Judaism. And he basically renovated uh, the temple that was rebuilt by the exiles who returned into uh, to Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. He rebuilt it. He plated it with gold. It was enormous. It was gorgeous. There was no temple on earth like it. He did that for two reasons, to impress the Jews and kind of curry their favor so he could be their king, and then also to impress Caesar, because he put an eagle at the top of one of the gates into the temple, and the eagle was the symbol of Rome. Anyway, the disciples are following Jesus. They look at the temple. They say, look at this place. Have you ever seen anything like this? Remember, Jesus is a carpenter, and a carpenter in the first century was not a wood carpenter. He was a stone carpenter. He was more likely a stone mason. And um, so they look at the stones. They say, Jesus, you're into this. Look at the architecture. Look at the stones. Look at the, wow. And Jesus says, don't be impressed. The time is coming where there will not be one stone left on another. All will be thrown down. Now check this out. The fact of the matter is what Jesus said actually came true. Now let me just show you a picture that I took in Israel when I was there last year. This is a picture of the temple. That is the last remaining wall of Herod's temple. 
uh, is the retaining wall. We call it the, the wailing wall. This is another side of it. But um, look at the stones, at the pile of stones to the left of the picture. You'll see that <laughs> those are the stones from the temple that Herod built. The Romans came in in AD 70, and they literally pushed the walls of the temple off the foundation walls. What Jesus said came true 40 years after he died and rose again. Now, it, it's, it, it stands to reason well, that we should pay attention to what Jesus is saying here for what he's about to say in regards to the last, last days and in regards to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in A.D. 70. Okay, because look at verse 3 with me for a moment. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, okay, so he's just got done telling them this temple is going to be destroyed. So the disciples are like, whoa, that's crazy. This place is gorgeous, and Herod the Great built it, and it's enormous. How could it possibly come falling down? And so they come, they said, tell us. Look at the question now. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Okay, pause. Leave it up there for me, Matthias. I'm going to do some drawing on this screen. <laughs> Okay, so look at, look at the question for a moment, because if you notice here, the disciples actually ask three questions. First, they ask, when will these things be? What, what, the, what, 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 what are these things? That is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They didn't know it was A.D. 70 back then. They're, they're trying to find out when. So that's what he just talked about. They want to know when is that going to happen. But notice there's another question, and I'll switch colors here so you can see it. What will be the sign of your coming? That is a different question. That's a different question. Now, they associate it with the same thing, AD 70 with Jesus' coming, or the destruction of Jerusalem with Jesus' coming. But we now know it's been 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years, 1,930 years since AD 70, Right? And Jesus has still not come. So this is a second event. Please note this. I'm going to get to a point. Just follow me for a moment. And then they ask a third question. And of the end of the age. So actually, let me do that in another color as well. And of the end of the age. There's another event that they are asking about. The church age. So Jesus is coming. Or sorry, let me back up. The destruction of Jerusalem, temple. Jesus is coming and the end of the age. Three questions. And now what you're going to see is Jesus is going to answer those three questions with one answer. One answer. He's going to basically just unload on them. And he's going to talk about all three events in one long discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. I hope this makes sense, but if it doesn't, just stay with me because I'm going to unpack it based on what we've talked about with Revelation so far. Remember that I've been telling you from the beginning of the study that Revelation typically has four interpretive views. That is, there are some that interpret the events of Revelation as everything happened before A.D. 70 in the destruction of Rome, I mean, in the destruction of Jerusalem through the Roman Empire, and it was terrible and it was horrible. It was the distress unlike Israel had ever known before. And it inaugurated the church age, and it was judgment of God for rejecting his son and all that stuff, right? That's the preterist view. The historicist view is that the book of Revelation unpacks history unfolding the church age 
from the time of Jesus' ascension to our day today. And you remember that when we were in Revelation 18, I said, well, now the historicist view starts to fall apart because there are some things happening in this passage that actually haven't happened yet. And then there's the futures view, which I grew up with. If you were Pentecostal, charismatic, if you were Baptist, you grew up with this view. Uh, the futures view, basically, that everything, in Jer- everything from Revelation 4 onward is talking about the last seven years of human history. And so it has yet to happen, futurist. And then the spiritualist view is that we just look at principles, right? Four views. But I said one episode, and I don't know if you remember, I said, I believe that it is very possible all four views are correct. You say, whoa, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. How can it all be correct? Because you have to understand the nature of biblical prophecy in the Old Testament to interpret biblical prophecy in the New Testament. The same God, the same Holy Spirit that inspired Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel also inspired the Apostle John when he wrote Revelation. This is important. So why would God get to the new covenant and kind of change what prophecy actually does? Let me, let me, let me teach you the biblical standard of prophecy. In the Old Testament, the rule of pro- biblical prophecy is this. It usually has two meanings. It usually has two meanings. It usually has a meaning for the generation, okay, that hears the prophecy, and it has a meaning for something pertaining to the activity of the Son of God. This is the biblical rule of Bible prophecy. I will give you a couple of Old Testament examples, and then we'll get back to Matthew 24. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a temple. God says, you will not build a temple. You are a man of bloodshed. However, I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to establish over my people your descendants. Your son will be my son, and I will make him a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then he says uh, in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay. Solomon is that son in David's generation. But Jesus is that son for eternity's generation. Do you understand? Because Solomon's kingdom eventually ended. Israel went into exile into Babylon in 586 BC. Their kingdom ended. In fact, it has never, it has never come back since then in terms of its power and dominance over the world. But it was fulfilled through the coming of Christ, his first coming, and it will be consummated at the coming of Christ, his second coming. See, because the verse in 2 Samuel 7, 13 cannot possibly refer only to Solomon because it talks about a kingdom that lasts forever. And in the following verse, God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. It has to be speaking to someone other than just Solomon. Double meaning. Do you understand what I'm saying? Another example, Deuteronomy 18, 15. This is Moses talking to the Israelites and he says this, quote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen, end quote. Moses says to the people of Israel that God's going to send someone like me, a prophet, and you will listen to him. Now, their generation, or, you know, just after Moses' generation, this is fulfilled in the person of Samuel. He becomes a prophet who inaugurates the kingdom or the kingship of Israel. 
And Israel does listen to Samuel. He is regarded as one of the great prophets even of his day. They love Samuel. One of the very few prophets in Israel who is actually loved in his lifetime. Most of the prophets of Israel were hated in their lifetime, and then they were um, honored after their deaths. But Samuel is beloved, so he is listened to in uh, the next generation. But it is not just talking about Samuel. It is also talking about Jesus, who is our true Moses, who leads us out of slavery into the promises of God, just as Moses led Israel out of slavery into the promised land. Do you see how prophecy in the Bible in the Old Testament works? There's a double meaning, a meaning for the generation to which it is spoken and a meaning for the generation that experiences the acts of Christ on the earth. So when we talk about the acts of Christ on the earth, we have to realize there are two points of those acts. There is the act of his first coming when he comes as a sacrifice for sins, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, is crucified five days later, is raised to life eight days later, and today inaugurate, and then inaugurate the church age in which we live today and reaches the nations with the gospel, okay? But there's a second coming. There's a second earth uh, intervention of Christ coming that the New Testament writers write about. So when we get to Matthew 24 and, Ma and Jesus is unpacking prophecy of what's going to happen, you've got to think in terms of double meaning. Okay, double meaning, meaning that he's talking about the generation of the disciples and he's talking about the generation that will see him come again. Very important that you get that because if you don't see it that way, Matthew 24 is tremendously confusing. But when you see it that way, it suddenly becomes clear. So let's get into the prophecy, shall we? This is where it really gets good. Okay, verse 5, prophecy number 1. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Can we just look at this line for a moment? Many will come saying, I am the Christ. Just think about this phrase spoken by a first century itinerant rabbi named Jesus who literally spent three years on the earth teaching what he taught. And for him to claim, many will come in my name. I mean, just doesn't that sound audacious? If Jesus is not who he is, that claim is crazy. Imagine me saying, I'm going to die one day, but I want you to know that someday, many, many years from now, many will come in my name. They will say, hey, I am Tim Hatch, resurrected from the dead. I mean, crazy, right? But Jesus said this to the disciples. He said, sign number one. You want to know when my coming is near? Sign number one. Many will come. Okay, now this, this prophecy was fulfilled in, this, in the disciples' generation. From A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, there was at least three people who said, who claimed they were the resurrected Messiah, other than Jesus, or at least claimed to be the Messiah and claimed to come in his name. Uh, one of them is named Thaddeus, uh, another one, Simon Magus. Actually, he's mentioned in, in Scripture. And uh, another one named Phaddeus. Great names from the early <laughs> first century. <laughs> but anyway, then AD 70 happens, and Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans. And now it's like nobody can actually claim to be Jesus for a long time. Until, mind you, the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, I have here... Four pages. Okay, four pages from a Wikipedia article. <laughs> Wikipedia, always trustworthy, right? <laughs> but anyway, the, the, the name of the Wikipedia page is List of People Who Claim to Be Jesus. You can look this up yourself. And I counted 44 names 
of people in the last four centuries alone who claim to be Jesus that we know of. In other words, they made such an audacious claim and had such a spectacular following, they actually got not only on this list, but they even got their own Wikipedia page themselves. Friends, some of you are dying for a Wikipedia page. I have a plan. Claim to be Jesus. There you go. You're going to get a Wikipedia page. No, don't do that. That's heresy. You'll go to hell. Okay. Um, don't go to hell. Follow Jesus. Don't claim to be Jesus. But I, I was just like reading this list, and I thought there's two listed in the 18th century. There's about one, two, three, four, five, six listed in the 19th century. In the 20th century, all hell breaks loose. There's like 30 guys. And then in the 21st century, this very infants, infantile century, one, two, three, four, five people claiming to be Christ coming in. This is happening. Like what Jesus is says, what Jesus says here has, has come true. And notice that he doesn't just say, many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ, but they will lead many astray. This always baffles my mind. When people claim to be Jesus and they gain a following, it just proves to you that most people are tremendously biblically illiterate because if they just did some research into Matthew 24, they would say, hmm, this guy's claiming to be Jesus and Jesus told me he would come and not to listen to him. Maybe I shouldn't follow him. But there are countless millions, and I mean millions, who have followed false Christs. Uh, I want to give you a couple of examples. Uh, Jim Jones, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Older people will probably be familiar with this. In 1973, he led a group of 800 people down to um, the jungles of Guyana. He established a, a commune there, named it after himself, called Jonestown. And one day, he had them all drink cyanide-laced uh, Kool-Aid, in a mass suicide because uh, there was some investigation going on from uh, one of the congressmen from his district in California, in San Francisco. And he claimed to be Jesus Christ. Here's another example. Sun Young Moon. Uh, he has a church. Well, he's dead now. But he has a church of one, point, one to two million people worldwide. Actually, I don't know if he's dead. I don't know if he's dead. He might be alive still. He's a church of one to two million people worldwide. He created the Unification Church. The Unification Movement is well known for its weddings, its mass weddings, where through marriage people escape the sinful lineage of humanity and are grafted into God's sinless lineage. In 1982, this guy had the first large-scale blessing or marriage ceremony of over 2,000 couples in Madison Square Garden in New York City. <laughs> Madison Square Garden in New York City. I think there's a picture of it here on the screen. Ma in New York City, friends, 2,000 people decide to get married through his unification movement at the same time. It, it just baffles me how stupid people are. It baffles me. Uh, anyway, in 2007, John Allen Miller founded Divine Truth in Queensland, Australia, and immediately began purchasing tons of land. He owns upwards of 240 hectares, 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 whatever that means. Lots of property. And he plans to build learning centers and a visiting center and international centers. He claims to be Jesus Christ. Um, he, <laughs> he claims that he has met Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Mahatma Gandhi, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the afterlife. Lucky him. Uh, <laughs> people follow these people. I just, I'm astounded that what Jesus said comes true. Uh, by the way, a, a huge sign that the guy you're following is actually a cult leader. I, I got a whole spiel on this. Someday I'm going to do a whole spiel on the top five signs you're following a cult leader. Like sign number three is 
he's acquiring lots of land. <laughs> okay. Sign number two is he's acquiring lots of weapons. Okay. Uh, when, when you have a guy who's acquiring that much land in the name of religion, watch out. You just might be in a cult. That sounds like a Jeff Foxworthy line. <laughs> you might be a cult leader if your leader is acquiring 240 hectares of land in Australia. Uh, the point I'm trying to make, though, is what Jesus said is that it was going to happen is happening and continues to happen. There's a guy in 2007 named David Shaler. This is my favorite person on the list. He's way down on the bottom of the list here. 2007. David Shaler is a former MI5 agent. So that's the um, Mission Impossible, I think. Is that what it's called? Actually called Mission Impossible Agency in, in Britain. He's a, whistle, he's a former whistleblower, and in the summer of 2007, proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. He's released a series of videos on YouTube claiming to be Jesus, although he's not built up any noticeable following since his claims. Now, you'll be interested to know that he was a uh, conspiracy theorist, uh, but, li- but in 2009, uh, in an article with the London Evening Standard, he revealed that he was living as a woman uh, in... Um, Surrey and his former girlfriend, Annie Machen, claims that his long battle with the intelligence services led him to suffer a breakdown. Uh, Shaley has since told newspapers that his transvestite alter ego uh, is called Dolores Kane, which sounds more like a comic book character than anything else. I have a picture of him, though. I want, I want you to see the picture. This is David Shaler. I only put this picture up because if this guy can claim to be Jesus... Anybody can claim to be Jesus. <laughs> Evidently, the fitness factor does not matter when when one decides to claim to be the Messiah. I'm saying my rule is: if you've got a double chin, you're automatically excluded from messianic claims. I'm sorry if you if you have a double chin, if you munch that many donuts, you you cannot save me. I'm so sorry to tell you, David Shaler. But anyway. <laughs> What Jesus said is coming true. <laughs> many are claiming to be following, to be Jesus, and then they're leading many astray. Like, it's just unbelievable how many people. David Koresh, many of you remember the Waco fiasco, and uh, Janet Reno, the fiasco that was uh, the, the government's involvement in what was uh, a, a private religious cult. And now, you know, I am against religious cults period, okay? And when children are getting raped and molested, there has to be some intervention there. There's a lot of debate about whether that was right or not for the government to intervene in Waco. It led to the death of that entire group of people. But he claimed to be Jesus, David Koresh. Bad things happen when your cult leader claims to be Jesus. That's sign number one, by the way, of those five signs. There's two others. I won't talk about them. If your religious leader claims to be Jesus, you might be in a cult, okay? So... Let's go on, verse 6, and you will hear of, ro- uh, of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Okay, so this actually takes place in the Disciples' Day. Between uh, AD 30 and AD 60, lots of insurrections. And there's lots of rumors of insurrections. You, you see that the Romans really oppressed the Jews, and they, they raised their taxes constantly. They, they hideously treated the Jews. And uh, the Jews revolted, and they revolted many times and in many ways, and they were put down in many t- at many times in many ways. That's, that's why in AD 70, the, the Roman general attack, uh, Titus comes in and literally just obliterates the city because he's like, enough, enough of this city causing us headaches. But there was many wars. There was many wars. So it happened in Jesus' day or the disciples' day, and it happens still today. 
Today, there are wars and rumors of wars every single day. Every single day. In fact, as I was doing the study, I just clicked onto the, to one of the 24-hour news networks, and it was talking about Iran and their possible nuclear strike on, guess who? Israel or the United States. Uh, and so we're always hearing these war- rumors of wars. We're always seeing these increase in wars. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history in terms of military conflict. Two world wars, the Vietnam conflict, the Korean War, the Cold War, literally blanketed half of the century. Wars, 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 increasing, right? That's what's happening. That's what's happening now. Now there's a religious war, the, the you know, radical Islamists against the, you know, the, uh, against Israel, against the, uh, the West in many respects. Um, there's the culture wars. I think that's a war. That's happening still to this day. But I thought about this word rumor. When Jesus says rumors of wars, okay, the, the word here in Greek is a chaos, a chaos, and it actually could be translated news, report, or information. So think about this. You will hear of wars and news reports of wars. Man, <laughs> if that's not coming true today, I don't know what is. In other words, Jesus 2,000 years ago said, by the way, you're going to hear news reports of wars all the time. Okay, you have three channels, four channels. Actually, I think there's like now like 16 24-hour news networks out there that could tell you that there's a war happening at any moment of the day. Any time of the day where you want to be depressed and scared about war, just go to one of the 24-hour news networks and you will be delightfully frightened, okay? Any time of the day. What's amazing, though, is how Jesus called this 2,000 years ago. And then he says, can we just put this full screen again? Because just, just look at what he says. See that you, who's you, me and you, his followers, are not alarmed. Audacious claim here, Jesus, because war is hell. Yes, we should know this. And Jesus has the audacity to say to people, don't be alarmed. I just think that's like a a subtle way of him saying, I'm in charge. If you follow me, even war, which is hell, cannot touch you and, he, and cannot remove you from my plan for you. Um, just, I don't know, just a subtle claim to, mess, uh, to messiahship for Jesus there. In spite of all the wars, Christians, you don't have to worry. Why? Because over the nations, over the governments, is Jesus at the right-hand side of God the Father. And he's got his hand on his church. Uh, so then there is that, uh, do not be alarmed. And then he says in verse seven, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then verse eight, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Okay, there is nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes in various places. Uh, a recent Washington Post article talks about how every time there's a war, there's a famine. And uh, the, 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 the article actually says this. Just think about the fact that Jesus said there would be famines. Well, there was famines in the times of the Romans' siege on Jerusalem, one of the worst famines in human history, by the way. The Roman historian Josephus talks about this. It was, it was horrible, women eating their children, parents eating their children, because they were that hungry because of the siege, the Roman siege uh, around Jerusalem, starving them out before they went in and wiped them out. Okay, so it happened in the disciples' generation, uh, by the way, the, the, the church got out of Jerusalem before this all happened. Why? Because of Jesus' Jesus's words here, which we will get to. But 
It happened in Jesus, uh, the disciples' generation. It's happening now. And you think about this. There is enough food on the planet to feed everybody. There's enough food on the planet to feed everybody. Why can't we feed everybody? Wars. Jesus says nation will rise against nation, and then there will be famines. So here's what the Washington Post reported. This is 2017. It says, our world, quote, our world produces enough food to feed all its inhabitants. When one region is suffering severe hunger, global humanitarian institutions, though often cash-strapped, are theoretically capable of transporting food and averting catastrophe. Famine now threatens 20 million people, more than at any time since World War II, as defined by the United Nations. Famine occurs when a region's daily hunger-related deaths exceeds 2 per 10,000 people. But what's the problem? Here's the problem. We can't get food to war-torn areas. Quote, each of these four countries is in a protracted conflict. While humanitarian assistance can save lives in the immediate term, none of the food crisis can be solved in the long term without a semblance of peace. The threat of violence can limit or prohibit AIDS workers' access to affected regions, and in some cases, starvation may be a deliberate war tactic. End quote. That's from the Washington Post. In other words, what Jesus said is coming true. More famines now than ever. More famines now than in the last 50 years, uh, 70 years since World War II. Uh, increased famines. Okay, now why do I talk about increase? Because what Jesus says in verse 8, look at it. All these are but the beginning of what? Birth pains. And there are two facts about birth pains. I know this because my wife has given birth three times. Birth pains increase in frequency and what? Frequency and intensity. Intensity. That's what a birth pain does. Jesus says when you see wars increasing in frequency and intensity, and you see famines increasing in frequency and intensity, and you see earthquakes increasing in famine, I mean, I'm sorry, in frequency and intensity, uh, this is the beginning of what is going to be the culmination of the ages. So the question becomes, what about earthquakes? Are we seeing more earthquakes now than ever before? And there's a lot of debate about this because a lot of people say, well, it seems like there's more earthquakes, but it's just because we can report them more. Well, yes and no. Just because we can report more earthquakes now does not necessarily mean that there was the equal number earlier in times past because we couldn't report it. We didn't know. And if the only reason why we believe there are more earthquakes now is because of our ability to measure them and discover them, does not alter the fact that what Jesus said we would experience firsthand is not tr coming true. In other words, we are aware of more earthquakes now because of our increased knowledge and capability to track them, i.e. what Jesus said is coming true. You will hear of these things. You will hear more of these things. Increased intensity. By the way, the highest number of earthquakes on record, uh, according to our ability to study and track them, was in 2010. And in that year, 24 of those earthquakes were over a 7.0 magnitude, which is an astounding number. On average, we experience 55 earthquakes a day. This is from the U.S. Geological Survey. 20,000 earthquakes a year. But they're so small, you don't even notice them. But they're increasing in intensity and in number. And that is happening now. What Jesus said is true. Uh, these things are increasing. Uh, i got a couple of charts for you. Uh, this is um, from ourworldindata.org. The University of Oxford puts this out. 
And you can see from 1900 to 2018, the no this is a chart that lists the number of recorded natural disaster events, natural disasters, uh, the number of global reported natural disaster events in any given year. This includes droughts, floods, extreme weather, extreme temperature, landslides, dry mass movements, wire wildfires, volcanic activity, and earthquakes. Look at the way in which this is like a stock market uh, bull market. I mean, this is like everything is just taken off right around 1980. It just skyrockets. Uh, and it's unbelievable to see what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 coming true. This is another chart from uh, Our World in Data from, again, Oxford University, not a Christian institution. Global reported natural disasters by type. So even the types of disasters are increasing, again, exponentially since 1970. This is another chart. This is uh, from the New York uh, New. New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, they have discovered that natural disasters and armed conflict have marked human existence throughout history and have always caused peaks in mortality and mor morbidity. But in recent times, the scale and scope of these events have increased markedly. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine. They say since 1990, natural disasters have affected about 217 million people every year, and about 300 million people now live amidst violent insecurity around the world. Natural disasters are broadly classified as biological, climate-related, or geophysical events. Uh, there are, th and, and, then, and then they say this, there are three times as many natural disasters from 2000 to 2009 as there were from 1980 to 1989. In other words, the number of natural disasters has, has tripled between those decades. The growth, and they also say this in their research, the growth is mainly climate-related events, accounting for nearly 80% of the increase whereas trends in geophysical events have remained stable. In other words, the climate is changing. There are climate activities changing. And I, I don't necessarily just mean, I'm not talking about climate change. That's a, that's, a, that's a dog whistle term. I'm talking about there are droughts in places like crazy. There are, I have all these, all, I have all this research here on my desk uh, about Cal any, everything from California wildfires to Amer Africa's global heating causing droughts across Africa like never before. In India, they've got floods in one area. They've got droughts and, and uh, no water in other areas. Uh, they, they've got uh, brutal heat in Alaska this year. Um, this is from, uh, where is this from? The University of, I'm not even going to try to discover what that's from. This is from, where is this from? I'm not, uh, Northern Ireland. A honeybee colony. Honeybee colonies are down 16%. And so you've got all of this crazy change in the ways in which we can produce food and the ways in which we can rule and, and dominate creation, you know, from Genesis chapter 1. And it's crazier than ever before, and it's increasing. The bottom line is what Jesus said is coming true. Now, because we're seeing this, what do we see in our debates, our political debates? Climate change. Human caused climate change. Well, is it human caused? Sure, it can be. But, but think about it. It's kind of ironic that we are having these arguments now and Jesus predicted it 2,000 years ago. Who cares what the cause is? Is it human caused? And if, even if it is human caused, which I believe part of it is, is because humans are fallen and we brutally treat God's creation. We treat God's creation brutally. We don't treat it right. We don't rule and dominate it correctly. We rule and dominate for our own selfish lusts and our own selfish ambitions. I agree 100% with that argument. 
But it's just kind of amazing that it's coming true. Like, think about this. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said this is going to increase. 2,000 years later, here we are. It's increasing three times as much as three decades ago. So, yes, we're getting closer than ever. And we might be in the very last of the last days. Okay. Verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Okay, hated by all nations for my name's sake. Just think about this. Christians are hated everywhere. They are hated everywhere. Do you ever think about this? They're hated everywhere. Hindus hate Christians. India right now is ramping up Christian persecution like never before in its history. Muslim countries ramping up their, their persecution of Christians like never before. North Korea, right now, half the Christian population in North Korea, and there is a sizable population of Christians in North Korea, about 400,000 uh, Christians in North Korea. Half of them, almost half of them, are being brutally tortured and imprisoned right now by that, dictator, by, by that dictatorial state. Uh, historically, true Christians have been hated by even the false Christians, the church-state Christians, such as in France and England and Spain and in medieval Europe, the true Christians who fought for the scriptures to come into your hands, John Wycliffe, uh, William Tyndale, uh, and others who fought to get the Bible into your hands. They were chased out of town. They were burned at the stake. They were, they were dug up after they were dead and burned again to scatter their ashes in the river to kind of put, us, put to death their movements. The, those, those persecutions failed, and the Christian church took off because of the dissemination of the word of God to the common man. But the fact remains, true Christians have always been hated and have suffered tribulation at the hands of what Jesus says here, all nations. We talk about this endlessly on this podcast, too, about in the West— Christianity, the, the anti-Christian sentiment rising ever so slightly in this country, in Canada, in Europe. It's happening right now in our comfy, cozy confines of the Western world. And you have to understand that this also happened in Jesus' day. So what Jesus says to them in the first generation that this applies to, it happened. They were hated. They were burned at the stake. They were, they were cast out of their synagogues. They were denied property rights and business rights and all kinds of rights. And now, again, it's happening today like never before. In the first 300 years of Christianity, before Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which made Christianity the official religion of Rome, by the way, estimates are 6 million people were killed for the faith. 6 million Christians killed for the faith in 300 years. Well, guess how many Christians have been killed in the last 10 years for the faith? One million. Three, 300 years of Christianity, the first 300 years, six million killed. The last 10 years alone, one million killed. Estimates are that over the course of 2,000 years of Christian history, 70 million people have died for the faith, but 65% of those 70 million have died for the faith in the last century alone. 65%. What Jesus said came true in the disciples' generation, guess what? It's coming true again in our generation. It's coming true right now. Friends, get excited because the, the return of Jesus is coming. Okay, verse 12. And because of lawlessness will be increased. I'm sorry. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, let me just unpack this word lawlessness, okay, if you will just bear with me. Lawlessness in the Greek is 
anomia. A meaning no, and namas meaning law. Okay, literally the word means um, no regard for law. The Greek dictionary that I looked it up in says, quote, to behave with complete disregard for the laws or regulations of a society. If we are not living in those age, if we are not living in that age, I don't know when we will be. I just considered how many laws just are blatantly broken right now. The immigration laws of this country are a joke. They are treated like a joke. You are seeing serious problems in the southern border because we have a whole party in this country right now arguing for open borders. Let's just break, let's just commend people to break the laws and just cross illegally. Of course, they should. Lawlessness. All right, now, is there an argument to be made for what we do with illegal immigrants in this country? Sure, but let's not promote breaking the law by the people who should be enforcing the law, the president, right? <laughs> but this is what happening. This is what's happening. The laws of uh, standards of morality are being thrown out the door. Today we are legislating immorality. We are making everything legal. Pot, gambling, prostitution is becoming legal in more and more places in this country. These are these are these are practices that destroyed ancient cultures, and now we are actually promoting them in our culture. And Jesus said, lawlessness will be increased. Well, there was lawlessness increased in the disciples' generation. Guess what's happening right now in our generation? Lawlessness is increasing. And by the way, he says, because of that, the love of many will grow cold. Many Christians will watch lawlessness increase, and they will join in instead of standing apart. Is that you? Are you one of those people that says, you know what? I, it's just the way of the world now. This is just how it's going to be. We're just going to do this. This is the world. This is what we're going to go with the flow. Wrong. We are Christians. We are not commended to go with the flow. We are commended to stand athwart the tides of history and say there is something called absolute truth found in Christ. Jesus, uh, Peter, uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy. He says, understand this in 2 Timothy 3. In the last days will come terrible times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and holy. I mean, does this not sound like your Facebook feed? Because it sounds like it sounds like social media to me. Heartless, unpeasable, unple, unpeasable, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And look, having appearance, the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. That is happening right now. We just had a, a, a openly homosexual, married to a man, man, elected. Bishop of the Episcopal Church in Maine, uh, and it was celebrated with fanfare and and praise and what an advancement of human progress. And it's like this is exactly what Paul talked about: lovers of self. You can no more love yourself than to love your own sex so much that you cannot even possibly be attracted to the opposite sex. That's called love of self, homosexuality, and then appearance of godliness, the forms and the rituals and the and the ordinances, but zero power to see people's lives change. That's where we are. That's where we are now. Okay, we got to move on. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop go down to take what is in his house, and let those who are in the field not go back to take his cloak. Okay, he's talking about now the generation of the disciples. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by his enemies, run. That's basically what he's saying. And by the way, this abomination of desolation that Daniel talks about was fulfilled uh, two times. One before Christ, when Antiochus Epiphanes 
uh, a Greek general who established a, um, a, a, a sacrilegious object of worship in the Jerusalem temple and then sacrificed a pig on it. It, it, it infuriated the Jews. And by the way, he was a hideous king who killed so many Jews. That happened about 160 years before Christ. But then the, it was fulfilled in the time of the Romans when they come into the temple and burn it to the ground. They brought their emblems of pagan idolatry into the temple. And I believe it's going to happen at the return of Christ, right before the return of Christ, the, the futurist view of Revelation, that there's going to be one world government, one world leader who will lead this apostate religion and set up a uh, sacrilegious object in Israel to worship. That's what's going to happen. So he says, watch out for this. It happened before. It's going to happen again, just like all these other events. Verse 19, alas, for women who are pregnant, for those nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight might, might, might not be in winter on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now or never will be. So he's talking about both in Israel on a microcosmic scale and worldwide on a global scale as it happens again. Verse 29, uh, he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, this just proves that he's not talking about just his generation or the disciples' generation because he says, immediately after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus says there's going to be no sun, there's going to be no moon. This cannot possibly refer to AD 70, because it didn't happen then. This has to also refer to, now he's talking, so the double revelation, the double prof, uh, prophecy, mean, uh, double meaning of prophecy. He's talking about his second coming. Luke talks about this. Luke 21, 25, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and the earth, on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. Okay, look at this. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity. In other words, the nations are going to be confused because of what? The roaring of the seas and the waves. What do we talk about when we talk about climate change? The rising waters, the waves, the seas. Look at this, people. And look at this, verse 26. People fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world. This is Jesus talking 2,000 years ago. Now today, climate alarmists sound more like 1980s televangelists than, and, than ever before because they're talking about global catastrophe, only they talk about it from an economic perspective, a political perspective, but Jesus predicted this 2,000 years ago. Isn't this crazy? Then, we're, I'm going fast. I'm just trying to get through this, but look at verse 32. Very important passage. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and it puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these signs, you know that he is near at the very gates Truly I say to you, this generation, okay, so which generation? Both the generation he's talking to and the generation before he comes again the second time will not pass away, will not die until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Fig tree. Jesus is using that, that picture of a fig tree because in the Old Testament, the picture of Israel was a fig tree. It's uh, he, uh, Hosea 9.10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its fruit season. So when Jesus says, when you see Israel budding, when you see Israel about to blossom, you know that time is near. Israel was put back into national status in 1948. The generation that saw that happen is in about their, what, 70s, say 80s now? They're not passed away yet. 
I'm just saying, this is great. Now, Israel was started in 1948 as a nation, or recognized as an independent nation in 1948, and it really hasn't really blossomed and budded until really the last 20 years. And I was in Israel, and they were talking about this. Uh, their commerce, their industry, their, their technological advances, incredible advancements happening right now in Israel like never before. Uh, huge companies from the United States and the West are sending their up-and-coming programmers and technological people into Israel to learn from them and to join their research and development uh, programs. And it's becoming this, this, this center for industry and advancement in Israel. The fig tree. Guess what I'm saying is the fig tree is about to blossom big time. Okay? Watch Israel. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 32. Watch Israel. Because when you see Israel blossoming, know that I am at the door. I'm at the gates. And we are seeing that right now. Powerful stuff. Verse 36. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the, but the Father only. For as it was in the days of Noah, so will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And I just want to point out, Noah's flood came upon the world suddenly. They did not expect it. He says they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, they were eating, they were drinking. Noah enters the ark, gone. The world was swept away. So when we go back to Matthew 24, 41, verse 41 says this, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taking the other left. Okay, well, we don't grind at mills anymore. So again, double meaning of the prophecy. He's talking about the Romans' invasion of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he's giving us a picture of what's going to happen at the end of the age when he comes back again. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And if I was to say this, I have been raised in the church, I've grown up in the church my whole life, and I will say this, and this is my closing thought. When I was young, the church could not stop talking about the return of Christ. And today, it seems like we have lost the art of talking about the return of Christ. We have got to talk about the return of Christ. We have got to tell people he is coming again. And when he comes again, it will be sudden. It will be sudden and it will be over. Okay? So a lot of people are under the, that, 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 um, I believe, heretical view that there's going to be some kind of secret rapture where, where, where Christians are going to be suddenly swept away, their clothes are going to be left there, they're going to be gone, and then people will have a chance to come to Christ at that moment. I, I just don't see that in the Scriptures. We've talked about this on this podcast. I just don't see it. And if you're happy to, if you are, if you are happy to believe that, I'm not going to disparage you, but I've, I'm just telling you, when Jesus says in Matthew that they will be taken away, the word taken away there is not referring to some peaceful rapture of the saints. It's actually referring to those who are taken away violently by judgment of the Romans destroying Jerusalem. The word taken away in Greek there is a violent word for taking away. And oftentimes we have used this to refer to the rapture. It's not talking about the rapture at all. It's talking about the violence that will come upon the world who has rejected Christ when he comes again. So my point to you is this. These things that we talk about on the deep end, this, this episode, so important for your faith to get stronger, to stay awake, like Jesus said, stay awake, be prepared, get involved in church, get involved in faith, get involved in the gospel, because there is coming a day we do not expect Jesus will return, and your opportunity for grace will be over. 
Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Today is the day to hear his voice, not harden your heart, but turn and repent and receive the free gift of life in Christ's name. Will you do that? If you've already done it, will you give yourself to the purposes of God in this generation? Because we can see the signs and he is coming. Yes. To answer the question we began this podcast with, we are definitely, it seems anyway, in the last, last days. Thanks for joining me. Happy 4th of July. This was The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.